Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the Royal Academy and to our exhibition, Painting the Modern Garden, Monet to Matisse. On the screen is a photograph of Claude Monet taken in around 1921, so five years before his death in 1926 at the age of 86 in the garden that he created at Giverny in Normandy, in northern France, a garden which, as I'm sure you know, is today world-famous and attracts thousands of visitors. Um, It's unique, I think, as an artist's garden. The scale, the sophistication, the complexity of the garden. I I can't think of any other artist in the history of art, at least in the modern period, who created a garden quite like this. Of course, what's particularly interesting for us in the context of this exhibition is really a unique interconnection and symbiosis between Monet the artist and Monet the gardener. He really created the garden in order to give himself subjects to paint. The garden sustained him through uh, over 40 years in his very long career as an artist. He was extraordinarily knowledgeable as a horticulturalist and botanist, something we've tried to bring out in the exhibition. He goes way, way beyond being an amateur gardener. He once said that he thought that his garden was his greatest work of art. And so these two passions, art and gardening, really shaped the life of Claude Monet. Uh, About five years ago, when we were first sort of thinking about doing an exhibition on this theme, our initial thinking that was that we would just do an exhibition on Monet and Giovanni, which is, you know, would have been a, a, a very good subject in itself. But the more we looked into it, we realised that it had been done before, um, not in England, but in, in other countries, more than once. Uh, so it would be quite difficult to really do it well if you're just repeating something that has already been done. And we decided in the end it would be more interesting to... Uh, Taking Monet's uh, working life as the chronological framework, so that is from the mid-1860s to his death in 1926 or to the late 1920s, to broaden the subject and look at the way a broad spectrum of artists in this very interesting period in the history of art, which after all sees the rise of many new exciting avant-garde movements, impressionism, get symbolist painting, Uh, artists who are contemporary with the Impressionists but painting in a very different way, like John Singer Sargent or James Tissot, and then taking us right up into the very exciting avant-garde movements of the early 20th century. And so the subject looked at in this way became, I think, very rich and very interesting. And the other sort of interesting aspect of this period is that it is a period of great social change when we see the emergence of a modern bourgeois middle-class society pretty much as as it still exists today with a much wider spread of of money, of affluence. And this had a, a big impact on the way that people lived so you get, you know, in Paris, for example, we houseman's apartments with people moving into sort of smaller apartments in the city. And you also get the rise of gardening as a private uh, passion and pursuit, which it remains, of course, for very many people today. 
in the 18th century, earlier in the 19th century, uh, great gardens were largely the pursuit of royalty or aristocracy, or else there were functional gardens, largely for producing food. But from around the 1860s onwards, you get what is known historically as the great horticultural movement, which is a tremendous increase in, the, in interest in gardening, all sorts of people, you know, not terribly wealthy necessarily, but with little plots of land in the city or in the suburbs or in the countryside, could create their own um, private Garden of Eden. And accompanying this, you get a rise in uh, plant cultivators, nurseries, big uh, horticultural fairs like the Chelsea Flower Show that we have here, many in Europe as well, um, horticultural journals, magazines, books, plant and seed catalogues, the sort of, you know, the origins, what in our own time has become really the garden centre. So that is another very uh, interesting strand it, running through this period, which I think adds an, a, a lot of um, meaning to this story that we're trying to tell about the interconnection between art and gardens in this period. Um, I was very pleased to be able to start the exhibition with two really great early paintings by um, two, of, two leaders of the Impressionist movement, uh, Monet's painting Spring Flowers on the left and Renoir's Flowers in a Greenhouse on the right, both painted in 1864. They may well be uh, just cut flowers in a greenhouse. And this is around this time, Monet and Renoir are young men in their 20s, and it's around this date that they first meet. Uh, they become friends, they start painting together. These, of course, as I'm sure you can tell, are not at all in an Impressionist style. They, as you see, they're painted in 1864, and Impressionism as a new avant-garde movement really emerges at the very end of the 1860s, generally thought to really... Um, come to the fore around 1869, 1870. So this is painted in a more realist style, really much more in the Manet of Courbet, for example, or, or Manet. Um, you can see that both artists really know quite a lot about flowers. This is, they're not just sort of some vague, sketchy um, evocation of flowers. They're described in a certain amount of detail. They have the arum lily in a pot dominates Renoir's composition. And botanists have identified at least 10 different uh, flowers in Monet's painting. There are pelagoniums, um, there are um, hydrangeas, there are the striped uh, tulips, the Kaiserkrone tulips. And the, the lilac um, sticking out at the bottom of the basket with Gelder roses in it has been identified as uh, something called Persian lilac, which was a rather new species at the time. And so we get Monet sort of very aware of new, um, new, new species which were being cultivated in Europe. I was, um, and another thing to say about these paint, two paintings is they've very rarely been exhibited together. They were exhibited at an in, exhibition called The Oranges of Impressionism in the Metropolitan Museum at some point in the 90s. But, and, and they may have been exhibited other times, but it hasn't happened very often. And so I was very pleased that I was able to persuade the Hamburg Museum to lend us this painting, you know, on the grounds that we knew that we had the Monet, and, and they eventually convinced them it would be a great way to start our show. Um, another painting we have in the first gallery, which is a marvellous paint, pa painting from Monet's early period, 1867 now, 
from the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg is a very strong, powerful... I mean, I think one sees, you know, in these very early, very early part of Monet's career, just what an amazingly assured artist he is. Uh, this is a painting of his aunt's garden at Saint-Adresse, which is just outside Le Havre on the Normandy coast where Monet grew up. He was very fond of his aunt. She, um, first of all, encouraged him to be a painter against the fairly strong opposition of his father. And she was also a very serious gardener, as I think you can see from looking at this painting. And Monet was mad about plants and gardening, even from a teenager. And I think he learnt a great deal about gardening from this aunt. Um, the young woman in the white dress with the parasol is not the aunt, it's probably Monet's cousin. Um, you can see that from the planting in this kind of garden with this raised bed planted in a single colour, which is known as a carpet bed, pl planted probably here with red geraniums and a standard rose growing in the middle, more standard roses in, in the background, that it's quite formal planting. Um, it's actually the sort of planting one still sees today, sometimes in municipal parks uh, in England, also in, in France quite a bit. But I just point that out now because I think this was very typical in mid-century, in the 1860s. But when we discover Monet's garden at Giverny, you can see that he begins to plant in a very different way. Um, this is a painting, uh, sadly, I was not able to borrow for the exhibition, but it was in Marianne Stevens' Manet exhibition here just a couple of years ago. Um, but I just show it in this lecture because it's the only painting I know of that shows Monet actually gardening. You see him there with his watering can, with his young wife Camille and, and one of his sons. Um, and this is in the first garden that Monet made at a place called Argenteuil, which is uh, now a rather grim industrial suburb, very close into Paris. Um, in, in the early 1870s, it was a small place on the Seine, not very far from Paris, but rather more rural in those days. And here are, again, a pairing of paintings by Renoir and Monet. On the right is Monet's garden at Argenteuil. Um, and I think it's interesting, at this time, Monet's not at all wealthy. He's a, a, an avant, a young member of this what was really a sort of fringe group, the Impressionists, when they first got going. They were painting in this new technique, a very sort of small, uh, very freely applied dabs of paint. They painted on quite a modest scale, largely because they, their aim was to paint their paintings completely en plein air, outside in the open doors, to get to really sort of capture the true feeling of what outdoor life is like and capture a feeling of spontaneity. But so Monet's living here in a rented house with his young family. He's by no means successful as an artist at this stage. Um, but the interesting thing, I think, is that wherever he, wherever he, um, sorry, wherever, wherever he was living, he, um, even with very little money, he would always create a garden. And so here he's really concentrated on dahlias, uh, dahlias had been imported from Mexico in the late 18th century, but by this time, in the later 19th century, they were very popular, and all sorts of new hybrids were being created. And some botanists think that they can see in Monet's painting the giant um, 
um, Dahlia Imperialis, it, as it was called, which was very tall and had very large, splendid, boldly colored flowers. And on the left is Renoir at, at Argenté painting, Monet painting that painting. So it's very nice to be able to, to bring those two together. Another painting of Dahlia's, because um, I should mention that part of this great horticultural movement was an enormous rise in botanical and scientific experiments. So you get a lot of hybridization that's a cross-breeding cross of plants to produce new species. The botanists were always trying to create larger, bolder, more colorful species. And this, of course, was of great interest to gardeners and to the artists who were gardeners. Um, amongst the Impressionist group, uh, Gustav Kaibot is the other one who was a really serious gardener. And this is a, a painting that he does of his garden at Petit Jean de Villiers, also on the Seine, uh, not so far from Giverny. And you can see that it's dominated by this splendid big clump of these orangey-red uh, dahlias, which are probably an, another uh, variety of dahlia called the cactus dahlia that has these dark green shiny leaves and rather curved shaped petals. Um, and the other interesting thing about this painting is the greenhouse, because greenhouses for, for private gardens were a relatively new phenomenon in the late 19th century. Of course, there'd been famous, enormous greenhouses, like the ones at Kew Gardens, for example, earlier. But smaller private greenhouses uh, were on the increase at this time and, and were fairly new, partly, of course, to cultivate all these new species and also because of all the um, possibility of, of importing exotic plants from the, from the Americas and from Asia, which was also on the increase at this time. Here's a photograph of Kaibot in his greenhouse. You can see that it's um, a pretty, you know, very well-maintained, very fully stocked with plants. And Kaibot, he, his garden was never quite on the same scale as Monet's at Giverny, but nevertheless, um, it was a very serious garden. And um, here's an illustration of a rather strange object called a Wardian case, which in a way is like a small portable greenhouse, and it was used to import uh, plants to Europe from more exotic countries. And then, of course, botanists would go on these plant-gathering expeditions. And, and here's um, an engraving from a popular gardening magazine at the time, a French magazine, L'Illustration Horticole, uh, showing uh, somebody on one of these plant, plant ex exploration trips. This is a painting by Pissarro of a gardener that belonged to the French writer Octave Mirbeau. He's a friend and contemporary of Wiesmann's and of the poet Stéphane Mallarmé. He was an anarchist, um, a sort of symbolist, decadent writer, very close friend of both uh, Caillebotte and Monet. And in fact, it's to him that we owe the very first description of the garden, literary description of Monet's garden at Giverny that he wrote in 1891. Um, Mirbeau, Caillebotte and Monet formed a sort of little gardening club they were crazy about gardening, and, and their letters to each other from the time are, are very interesting because, um, you know, uh, Mirbeau will write to Monet, I, I've made a special collection of dahlias for you, and they're, they're all sort of wonderful shapes and sizes, and I'll bring them over on Sunday. Or else he'd say, I found a wonderful little orchid in the forest. I'm trying to find out more about it, and I'll, I want you to come over and see it. 
and they were always exchanging gardening tips, clippings, um, seeds, writing to each other about their gardens and their passion for gardening. In one letter, Mirbeau invites his friends over to his house here at Les, Les Dons, and he says, um, when you come, the one thing we're not going to talk about is art. We're only going to talk about the earth and about plants. Um, here is a photograph taken by Sacha Guitry of uh, Octave Mirbeau. We have uh, in the first two galleries paintings by a number of other Impressionist painters painting gardens. Renoir, we've seen Pissarro. Uh, we also have Manet and Albert Morisot. And this rather beautiful painting by Cézanne. Uh, Cézanne didn't paint that many gardens. On the whole, he's interested in more dramatic kind of landscape, like the, his many paintings of the Mont Saint-Victoire or the Bibemus Quarry in Provence near his native Aix. But this is actually a painting of his parents' garden, it's a rather fine mansion they lived in just on the outskirts of Aix-en-Provence that in 1886 Cézanne would inherit. And it's called the, the house is called the Jardin de Buffon. And I think already in the mid-1870s, Cézanne is learning from Impressionism here, but we see that very strong, innate sense of structure that he has that will emerge much more fully in his later work. Uh, here's a photograph of Monet just a few years after he arrives in Giverny. He begins renting the house in Giverny in 1883, I expect some of you have visited it, and you'll know it's a long pink house with green shutters. It was called Le Pressoir, and it had been lived in by a Normandy farmer. Monet moves there with his large family. His wife, Camille, had died at quite an early age in 1879, leaving him with two small sons, Jean and Michel. But he formed a relationship with Alice Ochtier, who was the estranged wife of his former patron, Ernst Oshde, who had gone bankrupt. And she had six children. So she and Monet moved to Giverny together with a, a whole tribe of eight children. Um, Monet here looks really like a sort of peasant gardener. And for the first, um, he doesn't really paint the garden for around 10 years. He spends 10 years digging. He digs up the old um, garden, the, the, the part in front of the house, quite a large area, was called Le Clos Normand, a sort of enclosed Normandy garden. It had been a typical garden of that type. It was largely an orchard of fruit trees with some flowers and some vegetables, but a fairly simple French country garden. And Monet sets about digging it up and completely redesigning it and replanning it. And in the early years, when he didn't have very much money, he worked on the garden a lot himself. He, he got the children to help. They did a lot of weeding. And he, he writes to friends, you know, that he's... What his friend Mirbeau said that he was in a fury of horticulture, digging, binding, weeding, clearing the, the land. Here is a plan of uh, Giverny. So the upper part is the Clos Normand. You can see the house, the long pink house, right at the top. And it has this alley, which is marked with an F, that goes up the center. And then down the sides there are all of these uh, beds that Monet planted in a very particular way. 
it, many, many visitors who went there and wrote about the garden always said it's really an artist's garden. And he sort of saw the garden almost like a sort of palette of, of different colors. And he would plant them so that there was a constant succession of brilliant, dazzling color. There was almost no interruption. He was very careful in the, in the you know, he's, he knew a great deal about the growing seasons of plants and he orchestrated the whole thing. So it was just a, a continuing, as one writer called it, a sort of firework display of non-stop color. Um, then separating the two parts of the garden with the water garden and the water lily pond in the lower part, um, it, in Monet's day, where it says I, was a railway track, but there were very few, I think just two or three trains a day. It is now quite a busy road, and they have constructed um, a tunnel that goes where you see the path coming out of the water garden on the left there. There's a tunnel that goes under the road that links these two very distinct and, and, and separate gardens. Um, Monet had the idea of making the water lily garden in 1890, um, and around this time he also buys the house. He borrows quite a lot of money from his dealer, Dion Ruel, to do so. At first he has quite a lot of difficulty in getting uh, planning permission to make the water garden, but he eventually does get it. Um, he does paint some paintings of the Clos Normand. Here's one of his first paintings of the garden at Giverny uh, from 1887 of his tree peonies. Um, at first glance, this is quite a difficult painting to read, and one wonders what's, you know, the flowers almost look as if they're upside down. But the, the tall blue uh, poles are poles supporting a straw roof um, over the plants to protect them. And then we have another uh, painting a little later of 1900 of Monet's famous iris garden at Giverny. Irises were one of his favorite flowers, and apparently he grew as many as 22 different species of iris at Giverny. He knew a great deal about irises. He belonged to a rather learned iris society, and later on one iris was actually named after his wife, Madame Claude Monet. Uh, here is a photograph of Monet's gardener, Félix Bray, working in the garden. You see the irises below in the foreground. And here is a botanical illustration from a contemporary um, gardening journal called the Flore des Serres et des Jardins de l'Europe. Um, because when I went to Giverny doing research for this exhibition, I discovered that Monet had a very extensive and serious library of horticultural books, and he subscribed to a number of major French um, horticultural journals. He also um, had copies of Country Life. So he read and re really you know, studied gardening in a very deep way. Um, unfortunately, not all of his library is still there. Some of it has disappeared over the years. But uh, research has been done sort of trying to put together um, a bibliography of all Monet's books, actually, but of one section on the horticultural books, and it really is very impressive. So after he finally gets uh, permission to make the water lily pond, he constructs this uh, bridge uh, over it, 
And this is one of a whole series well, of 12 paintings of exactly the same subject, the bridge spanning the water lily pond and the surface of the water lily pond dense with these water lilies. And he calls them, some he calls, this is one called Harmony in Green from the Musée d'Orsay. We have another painting from this series in the exhibition from the Pushkin Museum. And there are others uh, uh, around, and he often calls them Harmony in Green or Harmony in White, because what he's really interested in is exploring the effects of changing light on the same composition. Here's a print uh, by the Japanese uh, artist Hiroshiga. Monet, like many of his contemporaries amongst avant-garde artists, was fascinated by these Japanese yukioi prints. And he had a very substantial collection of them, which hung in the yellow dining room at Giverny. And Hiroshiga, in particular, painted ones with this, this sort of very arched bridge, which inspired the shape of the bridge that Monet actually constructed over the water lily pond. And we have a documentary section in the exhibition where we include the actual original letter that Monet wrote to the Préfet de Lure, the man sort of in charge of, of, of gardens and roads and in, in that part of Normandy, uh, because he, in order to make the water lily pond, he had to divert a small river that ran, uh, the River Ept. He wanted to divert a tributary of the River Ept that ran along the bottom of his garden and also to build two small footbridges. At first, the permission was refused because many of the inhabitants of Giverny were very against it. They were suspicious anyway of Monet because he was an artist from Paris and very different from them. Uh, but also the farmers were suspicious of what they saw as these strange aquatic plants that Monet was planning to grow, which they feared would poison the water and kill their cattle. Um, Monet writes further letters uh, to the Préfet de Lure saying, um, well, these people are just spiteful and mean-minded. They've just got it in for me. And anyway, some of the people have worked in my house who I've sacked. And then he says that um, he, all he's doing is trying to create a beautiful garden with motives to paint. And that in any case, the, the things that he's planning to grow, the irises, the rushes, the water lilies, are things that would grow naturally in that environment anyway. Uh, his friend Mirbeau writes a very eloquent letter in support of Monet's claim, and finally the permission is granted, which is good, because otherwise we wouldn't have any of Monet's water lily paintings. Um, he begins to buy um, very unusual new hybrid water lilies that he'd first seen at the horticultural display at the Exposition Universelle in Paris in 1889, particularly those bred by a specialist water lily grower called La Tour Maliac. And the thing about them was that they were bright pink and red. One sees them illustrated here in one of these horticultural journals. More traditional water lilies tended to be white or cream or yellow. And we've got in the exhibition this catalogue from 1910 from the La Tour Maliac nursery, which still exists on the, on the river lot in France. So you can order water lilies from them if you like. And they, we, one thing we're very pleased to have is we have the delivery slip from them, from their archives. 
uh, for Monet's first order of water lilies in 1893, which were being sent to, by train to the station at Vernon, which is the nearest station to Giverny, and it lists all the different species of water lilies that Monet is ordering, and also gives the growing instructions. In 1902, Monet embarked on a very ambitious uh, series of paintings entirely of the surface of the water lily pond, the water lilies and the reflections of the clouds and the sky. Uh, this is, and I was really very pleased to be able to get five paintings from this series. It occupied Monet from 1902 to sort of late 1908, and eventually was shown as an exhibition of about 48 paintings. The exhibition was in 1909 at the Durand-Ruel Gallery in Paris with the title Nymphéa Série de Paysages d'eau, Water Lilies, Series of Water Landscapes. And I was really thrilled to be able to get five paintings from this series spread chronologically through it. So this is the earliest one, 1903, and then we managed to get some from 1905, and then 1904, 1905, and then 1907. So it shows the evolution of the series and how Monet develops it. Um, in this early one, you get this very cool light. Uh, we know that Monet used to get up very early in the morning, about four o'clock sometimes in the summer, and sit beside his water lily pond and just sort of absorb it and commune with it and watch the early morning mist rise off the water. In this one, he's got some fronds of a probably a willow tree hanging over the top. But in the next one, um, it's a very different kind of light, and he's included a backdrop of the foliage on the distant bank. Um, but in 1905, all extraneous foliage is excluded. He starts painting on these square canvases, which really concentrate the view and the composition. So we just have the water lilies, the reflections, and the water. And again, in this painting also from 1905, here is Monet a little bit later, photograph taken in 1905, and you can see... It's very different from the earlier photograph I showed you where he looked much more as if he was really getting his hands dirty. He's now more successful as an artist. He's making more money. He's standing rather proudly behind his beautiful water garden. He used to order tweed suits from England, and he had a rather particular style of shirt, which I think he designed himself of a sort of check, a gingham, but with this ruffle down the front. So he's on his way to becoming a sort of country gentleman, which was very much the image he develops as he gets older. Um, he had tremendous difficulty painting this series, and I think around 1906, seven or so, he was so frustrated with it that he destroyed as many as 30 canvases. And one reason it was so difficult is that not, he's not just sort of painting beautiful paintings, and it's not just a question of starting one painting and finishing it. He saw them as an interrelated series. So he would have several canvases on the go at the same time, on easels, around in his studio. And although he may well have started painting them out of doors, he completes them in the studio because he's trying to establish uh, tonal, visual, coloristic harmonies and relationships between a whole group of canvases. And this is what caused him such torment. But in the end, the 1909 exhibition was a great success. And Many critics recognized it as extremely sort of radical and modern, as well as very beautiful art. One of the best critics of the time, who still 
you know, in my view, one of the greatest writers on Monet, Roger Marx, wrote a very good review of the show in which he ended up saying, uh, no more earth, no more sky, no limits now. In the next gallery in our exhibition, our big gallery three, we've made a sort of um, inner garden. And I'll just mention on passant, we worked with a very uh, talented designer on this exhibition called Robert Carson, who is largely known as a very world-famous opera designer and director. But he does do exhibitions. He's done a number of exhibitions at the Musée d'Orsay. And I wanted him to work on this show because I knew that he would bring something different and imaginative to it. So in our big gallery three, which as far as I know has not been done at the Academy before, we've made a kind of inner space, um, which we saw as a kind of inner garden. And in the inner part, we've put paintings where the focus is very much a close-up focus on very... Um, exuberant flower displays, whereas in the outer part it's a slightly more panor panoramic vista of gardens. And Robert says that the green wall that he made to separate these two spaces he saw as a metaphor for a hedge. So, um, so in this part, we, in this gallery, Gallery 3, we have very different artists from the ones we've been looking at so far, from the Impressionists. Uh, these are artists that we call the internationalists, which is not a terribly satisfactory term, but they are a very international group of artists, not painting at all in an impressionist style, but painting in this very um, confident, bold, kind of naturalistic style. And one of the prominent ones was the um, Spanish artist Joaquin Soroya, and here's an enormous painting that we've borrowed from the Hispanic Society in New York of his friend, the famous American um, decorative arts designer, Louis Comfort Tiffany. And here he is sitting in his garden, at the, sort of like a stately home, really, that he had on the north shore of Long Island called Laurelton Hall, painting his garden, immaculately dressed in a three-piece white linen suit. Um, <laughs> and surrounded by this extraordinary uh, lavish display of flowers growing in pots and in his, in his garden. And uh, as you know, um, one of the outstanding aspects of Tiffany as a designer was his work in stained glass. Not only windows, but the famous Tiffany lamps. You know, he did a wisteria lamp and was kind of thing in beautiful jewel-like colors. And one wonders if his friend Soroya wasn't trying to sort of evoke Tiffany's work in these beautiful colors that he surrounds him with in his garden. Soroya himself was a very distinguished gardener. He built a, a house and a garden and he moved into it in 1909 in the center of Madrid. And you can visit it, it's open to the public. It was restored just a, a few years ago. He was very interested in the historic gardens of Spain, for example, the Alhambra in Granada, and he went there and painted quite a lot. And this garden, the one he made in Madrid, is very much in the tradition of Moorish gardens. His house is sort of built round it, so the, the house, the rooms, many of them open directly onto this sort of inner courtyard garden. There are no sort of green lawns here. The, there are a lot of tiles, beautiful Valencian Spanish tiles. 
and the, the gardens are, garden is broken up into these sections or beds of flowers surrounded by hedges, quite a few standard roses, geraniums, um, flowers that grow, a lot of oleander flowers that grow in sort of hotter climates. And of course, water is a very important feature of the Moorish garden, both for the coolness that it brings, but also for the sound. And um, today, Soroyal's garden is on a very busy boulevard in, in Madrid, but the minute you go into it, you're just into this enclosed world with the sound of water and birdsong. Um, another painting, this uh, I believe on the left is one of the last paintings that Soroya painted and in the photograph on the right you can see him sitting in the chair that is rather poignantly empty in, in the last painting. Um, another artist, a contemporary of Soroya working in Germany is Max Liebermann and he also was a serious gardener and in the exhibition where we have an artist who really was a a dedicated gardener knew about gardening as opposed to an artist who's just painting gardens. We've tried to represent them with a group of works rather than just one. So in a sense, you can sort of walk around their garden. Uh, Max Lieberman is a German impressionist, painting in a rather distinctive style, rather different from French impressionism. He um, created a beautiful garden on Lake Wannsee, just outside of Berlin. Uh, with the help of a man called Alfred Lichtwach, who was the director of the Hamburg Museum, from whom we borrowed that Renoir painting I showed you right at the beginning, but who was also a well-known garden designer. And they um, built, constructed Liebermann's garden at Wannsee, which incidentally is also uh, open to the public. You can visit that today. Um, according to a style that was known in, in horticulture at the time as the German Reform Movement. It was partly based on uh, English arts and crafts ideas from William Morris and people like that, but also trying to combine the informality of German farm gardens with a much more um, formal notion of, of making garden rooms, which looked back to a, a German Baroque tradition. Um, here are the flower beds painted outside the house, Lieberman planted these so that they would change colour with the seasons, again, like Monet, so that he always had a motif to paint. And a nice photograph of Lieberman taken in 1922, looking down his garden over the flower beds in the painting on the left, down to the shores of the lake beyond. And here's another one of the kind of formal rooms in his garden at Vansey, the so-called hedge garden. A painting, beautiful painting, by John Singer Sargent in the show, uh, painted when he was working in the artist colony at Broadway here in England in the Cotswolds. Uh, again, as, as with many of the paintings, as I say, in, in this sort of inner room, um, a very close focus on the sort of exuberant uh, sense of fecundity and plenty it, that Sargent gets in his floral paintings. A great study of red poppies. A friend of mine who's here today just pointed out before I began that there is one white tulip that has crept into this uh, poppy bed. Um, Sargent was working with various other artists at Broadway, particularly someone called Millet, who was a friend of his, who I think the poppies are in his garden. And in correspondence at the time, I think from Millet, he said that a group of the artists tried on, on this particular day to paint the bed of poppies, but by Sar Sargent's was by far the best painting. 
Um, an artist a bit maybe not so familiar to you, I didn't know much about him before starting to work on the show, a Danish artist called Loritz Tuxen, um, who was part of the artist colony at Skagen in the north of Denmark. His painting of his wife almost engulfed by a sea of rhododendrons, and uh, Tuxen, uh, we can see him uh, actually painting in his garden at Skagen. And then the magnificent uh, chrysanthemum display in the famous greenhouse of Isabella Stewart Gardner, the great art collector in Boston. As you know, her house is now, uh, and her collection are now a museum in Boston, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, painted by um, a young American artist who died fairly young, but he again has just got this sense of plenty and splendor and this wonderful display of chrysanthemums. Just as a footnote, um, Dennis Bunker and Isabella Stewart Gardner together were the founders of the Boston Chrysanthemum Society. And, and I think you get these sort of iris societies, chrysanthemum societies, dahlia societies, shows this very sort of um, particular and close interest and passion that people had for plants and gardening. And Tissot, we put hung the, the, these paintings together on a sort, a sort of chrysanthemum wall. Uh, Tissot, the French artist who came over from Paris in 1870-71 at the time of the Franco-Prussian War and the Paris Commune, and uh, built a house in St. John's Wood, on, onto which there was, he attached a large conservatory. This is probably his companion, Kathleen Newton, in the conservatory, again, almost engulfed by chrysanthemums. Um, and then the third painting we have on this wall is Monet's chrysanthemum. He did three very similar compositions of chrysanthemums in 1897, which in a way is by far the most unusual and original of the three paintings, because he's just looking straight down on a bed of chrysanthemums. Uh, chrysanthemums like dahlias were very popular at this time. Uh, here's an illustration from L'Illustration Horticole, another one of these um, 19th century French gardening journals to which Monet subscribed. Um, they were very much associated with the Far East. They'd originally come from Japan, but the, from China, but then were very much connected, I think, in artists' minds at this date with Japan. And in front of these three paintings, we've done a display of documentary material uh, showing, for example, the incredibly popular book at the time by a writer called Pierre Lotti called Madame Chrysanthème, um, which in fact is the story of, of Madame Butterfly. And lots of these illustrations of chrysanthemums. And I think the sort of flatness and lack of a typical one-point perspective, which is you know, typical of Western European art, um, is very much inspired, again, by these Japanese prints. Um, Hokusai did a whole series called Les Grands Fleurs, or The Large Flowers, of which Monet owned several, and he owned this print of the chrysanthemums. And there's a letter from a dealer to a dealer written by Monet at this time saying, Please try to find me more of Hokusai's Les Grands Fleurs. I have the irises, I've got the chrysanthemums, but I would really like you to try and find me the poppies. And I think you get a sense of this sort of flat decorativeness in the composition in the Japanese print, which in some ways, obviously, is different in, in a painting, but I think which Monet is drawing on in, in that rather radical composition of the chrysanthemums. Um, 
We then have a documentary room in the show where we include things like the Monet letters, the permission for the water lily pond, uh, photographs and so on, which I hope you'll find interesting. But then we move on to a gallery that we called Gardens of Silence, where we have artists um, who are sort of uh, symbolist in a way. We have a great group of paintings by Santiago Rusignol, one of the great uh, Spanish garden painters, who did a whole series called The Gardens of Spain and actually produced a book that we also include in the exhibition of poems and illustrations that he wrote the poems and did the illustrations about different gardens in Spain. And he was very fascinated by the gardens of the Spanish royalty and aristocracy of, uh, the, uh, by this time in the late 19th, early 20th century were beginning to become quite crumbled and, and um, dilapidated. And, and Roussignol found in them, I think, a, sen a great sense of melancholy, but also a kind of quiet, dreaming sort of poetry. And, and, and then we have two uh, French artists in this gallery, one of whom is Henri Martin, who made a garden down on the River Lot in this kind of latter, sort of late uh, pointiste style, where he gets this sort of wonderful effect of shimmering heat on a very hot day. Again, uh, there, there are no people in any of these gardens, and there, in any of these paintings of gardens in this gallery, and they're all sort of clothed in a slight sense of distance and, and poetic nostalgia. Uh, we then move on to something very different, a gallery that we've called Avon Gardens, because I think one thing that uh, people tend to forget is that Monet did actually live into the full first quarter of the 20th century. And in his lat latter part of his career, he really is no longer an impressionist. He's very much a, a, a sort of modern avant-garde artist. And as we took his, his dates as the chronological shape of the show, we can look at artists like Matisse, you know, the avant-garde artists like Matisse, who'd be, be, been a fauve and, and began painting in very brilliant color. Matisse actually was a keen gardener. Here's a photograph of him and his wife in 1927 at their garden at Issy les Moulineaux, just outside of Paris. And you can see he's even made a water lily pond. Um, but he doesn't paint gardens a great deal. He does to some extent, but it isn't really a major theme in his work. However, in 1912, he goes down to Tangier in North Africa and wants very much to paint a private garden, a Moorish garden there. But when he first arrives in the February of 1912, it pours with rain for quite a long time. So he's, and he was expecting this sort of brilliant southern light but finally, one day, the rain stops, the sun comes out, and this garden just bursts into flower and to blossom almost overnight. And he so he paints this palm tree, and he writes about the experience of painting this painting and actually two others that go with it. And he said it was a sudden burst of creativity, like a flame. And if you stand close to this painting, you see that it's painted very, very quickly and spontaneously, Quite a lot of the canvas is left bare. The paint is quite thinly and sketchily applied. And you can see those three in, into the gray, air, gray, bluey, mauve area to the left. You can see he's just sort of scratched lines into the surface of the paint with the pointed end of the brush. 
Um, Emil Nolder, the German expressionist artist, was also a very keen gardener. He had a number of gardens throughout his life in uh, northern Germany and, uh, and also in Denmark. He lived up in that area of Schleswig-Holstein on the border between northern Germany and Denmark. And he, he also made gardens wherever he went and, and loved painting flowers. We put, put the quote up on the wall, actually, the colour of the flowers drew me magnetically to them and suddenly I was painting. You don't get a sense, really, in Nolder's garden of the overall design of his gardens. He really focuses very closely on the flowers himself. And what he really loves is vivid colour. And I think for all of these artists in this section of the exhibition, the garden really becomes a vehicle, not just for painting what they see, but for expressing uh, strong inner feelings. And Nola is particularly drawn to powerful colour, which is why in this early work by him, he's painting poppies. Uh, Kandinsky is not really an artist we associate very much with gardens, as you know, he goes on to be a major abstract painter of the 20th century. However, <laughs> in 1910, he was living in the Bavarian village of Murnau with a German artist called Gabriel Munter. And he does do a few paintings of gardens. And this is a fascinating painting because you can make out a row of houses on that very diagonal hill, brilliantly colored flowers in the foreground, including sunflowers and a rather unusual picture of Kandinsky actually digging his garden. It's a very nice surviving letters, because for a, a few weeks in 1910, Gabrielle Munter had to go off on a trip somewhere, and she and Kandinsky exchanged letters almost every day. And in all of her letters and his, his replies, she says, thing, you know, have you planted the lettuces yet? And how are the strawberries doing? And he writes, you know, the sweet peas came out today. And it, it's a really very, very nice sort of window into the time that they, not very long time that they were together, but when the, obviously gardening was a big part of their lives together. And just in terms of uh, Kandinsky's development, of course, this painting is very interesting because we can sort of see what the subject is, but at the same time, it's just a, a, a maelstrom of brilliant colors and shapes, and he's really hovering here on the edge of pure abstraction. Uh, beautiful painting we have in the show by Klimt, uh, um, the great Viennese painter. Uh, he used to spend the summers at Lake Attersee outside of Vienna and made gardens and loved gardens. And I think this, I think you can see in, in a strange kind of way quite a, quite a connection with his perhaps more famous figure paintings where he often um, adopts this slightly pyramidal composition and he gets this very sort of bejeweled mosaic-like effect. I mean, in his paintings of figures, he often will use gold leaf paint, which he has not here because that would not be suitable technique for a painting of a, of a, a country flower garden. But nevertheless, he's sort of woven this wonderfully uh, bejeweled, dense, sort of tapestry-like effect out of the flowers that he was observing. Two great decorative panels by Edouard Vuillard. These are wonderful things to see in the show. They haven't been exhibited in public since the 1950s. We were able to borrow them from a private collection. These were a commission from a friend of Vuillard's, a writer called Jean Chopfer, for his dining room in his Paris apartment. It must have been wonderful to sort of sit in a Paris apartment and be taken out into the countryside by these large panels. 
The subject is a garden at a place called um, Villeneuve-sur-Yonne in Burgundy, which was the garden of a very stylish and um, influential couple in the world of arts in Paris in the 1890s, Tade and Missia Natanson. Tade Natanson was the editor of an avant-garde journal called La Revue Blanche, which was really a focus for artists, writers, musicians, poets at the time. And the young woman sort of lounging in a white long white dress in the garden is his wife, Monsieur Natanson, who was a muse for a lot of these artists and writers, including Vuillard himself. The man uh, sort of crouching on the left is, is the painter Bonnard playing with a cat, and the woman in the red skirt is as an actress of the day called Marthe Mulot, who's reading a fashion magazine. Um, but there's something quite sort of dreamlike around, about this garden. We recognize the garden, there's nothing unreal about the subject, but somehow it's very, very still. There seems to be no breeze, no air. It's kind of suspended in time. It's a sort of ideal dream and a memory. And I think that was something very much that Vuillard and his friend Pierre Bonnard were after in, in their paintings of gardens. Um, here's Resting in the Garden from Oslo by Pierre Bonnard. He and Vuillard were great friends, but Bonnard was also a close friend of Monet. Both Monet and Vuillard visited Giverny. Bonnard's garden at Vernonnet in Normandy was only about three miles from Monet's, so they would visit each other frequently, talk about their painting, talk about their gardening. But Bonnard's garden was very different from Monet. He talked about mon jardin sauvage, meaning my wild garden. He wasn't at all interested in cultivating a very complicated garden that required a great deal of maintenance like Monet's did. He just basically let nature run its course. And he uses the garden as a means of creating this sort of modern Arcadia of people totally at one and in harmony with the garden, with nature, uh, with the landscape. And very often he will make the garden part of a larger continuum, part of a larger sense of nature and the landscape beyond. Uh, here is uh, Bonnard in Monet's garden at Giverny in 1926, which is the last year of Monet's life. <laughs> Um, the last part of our exhibition is devoted to Monet's last works, meaning really the works he painted during the last decade of his life. Um, one, in many of these works, he, he concentrates not so much on... He, he does do a whole series where he's still looking very closely at the water lilies, the water and the reflection, but he also does other paintings such as this one where he's interested in the richness and variety of flowers and vegetation growing along the banks of the ponds and in the trees behind. He also really begins to focus on the weeping willows around his pond. And at this time, 1918 and earlier, Monet's extremely conscious of the First World War. Both his son and his stepson were fighting in the war. Giverny was not so very far from some of the fighting, and occasionally, apparently, Monet could hear the gunfire from his garden. And he was very patriotic. He was a great friend of the French Prime Minister, Georges Clemenceau. And at one point, when his son comes home on leave and tells Monet about the horrific uh, things that are going on at the front and in, on the battlefield, Monet is very struck with conscience and guilt. And he says, you know, these, all these young men are dying for France, and what am I doing? I'm just here in my garden painting. But he, then he says, but this is what I do, I am a painter. And he came in a way, I think, to see his paintings as almost sort of his contribution to the war. 
And the weeping willow in particular, we have two great examples of these weeping willow paintings with this very sort of agitated, frenetic handling and stroke in the paint, I think really do express Monet's personal anguish. And the weeping willow became also for him a symbol of loss and grief. Uh, here he is, he built a very large studio. He built three studios altogether, but especially to accommodate his big, very last large paintings, he built a very big studio, and he had sort of uh, constructed kind of trolleys on wheels so that he could move these large paintings around. And he began to work from about 1914, 15 onwards on what he called his grand decoration, his large decorations, which in which he was referring to these very large panels, about four metres wide and two metres high, typically, um, which he conceived of to make a, a completely encircling panorama so that you would sit, the viewer would sit almost as if they were actually sitting by the water lily pond, encircled by nothing but the sky, the water, the reflections, and the water lilies. And, of course, eventually um, this scheme has ended up, as I'm sure you know, permanently displayed in the Musée de l'Orangerie in Paris, where it was installed in 1927, a year, under a year after Monet's death, as two big elliptical rooms. And it's really a very moving experience, I think, to sit, to sit in one of those rooms and look around. Um, we were very delighted to be able to end our exhibition with three panels related to that scheme, known as it come to be known as the Agapanthus triptych. Um, the original scheme for the water lily decoration in Paris was not for the orangery, but it, for, it, they were going to be displayed in a specially constructed pavilion that was going to be erected in the grounds of what is now the Musée Rodin. And Rodin was a close friend of Monet's. But for various reasons, there were disagreements with the architect and, and financial problems, I think, it never materialized. So in 1918, immediately after the armistice, Monet offered two of his big decorations to the French state as a gesture for the victory, but more importantly, really, for peace. And his hope was that they would help restore harmony to a very broken and uh, fractured world. But gradually, in um, negotiations with his friend Clemenceau, the scheme was expanded and ultimately resulted in, in, in the orangery decorations, which I just mentioned. These panels were not included in the orangery decoration and were in Monet's studio at his death in 1926. And later, through his son Michel, they were sold um, via a Paris dealer and then the New York dealer Nerdler Throughout the 1950s, they were sold separately to three um, American museums, the Cleveland Museum of Arts, the one on the left, the St. Louis Art Museum, the one in the middle, and the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City on the right. You might wonder why they're called the Agapanthus triptych, because there's no Agapanthus in sight. Uh, but we know from photographs taken of Monet when he was working on these panels that there was originally quite a large clump of Agapanthus in the lower left-hand corner of the left panel. 
But Monet, he didn't exhibit these works in his lifetime throughout his final decade. These were constantly sort of works in progress. He was working on them all rather as he did with the earlier Water Pond series, trying to establish relationships between them. So he's constantly reworking and revising. And at some point, for reasons we don't really know, he decided to paint over the Agapanthus, but it has retained the name of the Agapanthus triptych. Um, the three works have been assembled as a triptych in America. The three American museums did it in around 2010-11, I think. But as far as I know, they have not been seen together as a triptych in Europe since they left um, Monet's studio. So we're very pleased that um, we've been able to end the exhibition with this rather monumental and exceptional work, which I think is such a sort of summing up of Monet's two lifelong passions of painting and gardening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.